Okay, so every year, church staff has a Christmas party. Long-standing tradition is we do these white elephant gift exchanges as part of that. Last year, for the gift exchange, I got this gift. You want to see what this gift does? Here we go. Got you. Okay, here's Shane. Here's what this gift does. You push the switch. That's what it does. Every single time. You know, that was kind of fun the first day or two. I haven't really used it much since then. And there's a couple reasons. One is it gets boring. I mean, every time it does the same thing. The other reason I haven't used it a lot is because it makes me ask some personally uncomfortable questions. Like, is my life really like that? You know, Monday morning, I pop out of the box and I push the lever. And then when work is done, I pop back in the box. And Tuesday, I pop out again. And Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. And, and then Saturday, I pop out of the box and I push some different levers. I push the, the honeydew levers and the, the hobby lever and the catch up on what I didn't get done the rest of the week lever. And then I pop back in and I pop back out Monday and push a lever again. And it's, it's not comfortable to think about the fact that maybe my life is like that. Of course, some of you are retired and you're saying, I don't have to push the lever anymore. But um, the box, I think, can still make you wonder. It can make you look back on all the years that you spent in that career, working as hard as you did, and, and ask yourself, did I accomplish more than that? You'd hope that when you finished your career and they finally had the going away party, you retired, you stepped away, Let's face it, you really hope that the company would struggle for a while without you. <laughs> and, and the sad truth was, within about 24 to 48 hours, things moved on just fine because they found somebody else to push the lever. Or maybe, that's not so much it, but it's as you look forward. And, and you think, well, what does this chapter of life look like? I mean, it feels good not to be pushing the lever any longer, but you're not sure about what maybe your new freedom isn't really such a big improvement. Chuck Colson wrote a great book a number of years ago called The Good Life. Let me read to you one paragraph out of that. He says, living as I do in a beautiful Florida retirement community, I've watched a steady parade of retired executives buy condos and tile-roofed villas, leaving behind the hubbub and pressures of business, grabbing their golf bags and heading for the course. I've seen in very short order how long that initial burst of joy and freedom lasts. At best, six months. Boredom soon sets in. As one disillusioned former executive asked a friend, do I have to play golf every day? Do you know why those questions bother us? Why this box bothers us? Because we were created to be beings that have purpose. When God created man in his image, he created us as beings who have an innate desire to have meaning 
to find purpose. In fact, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. When God created the perfect man and put him in the perfect environment, the perfect environment was not a hammock with a mint julep in his hand. The perfect man in the perfect environment was given a job to do right from the get-go. He had a purpose. He had meaningful things to do. There's nothing wrong with taking life easy. There's nothing wrong with rest. In fact, right in the creation account, we have the, the record of God setting the rhythm of observing a Sabbath to rest. But resting was only one-seventh of the story, right? God is never depicted as being dormant or passive or inattentive. We see God as active and creative and forward-thinking and planning and purposeful. And we have been created in his image. While we may not be in the garden any longer, God still has things for us to do. He still has a purpose for our lives. And at a very deep level, we hunger to lead lives that have purpose. If you're going through the Rooted series uh, this week, every week there is uh, kind of a key memory verse they give. And the verse they gave this week comes out of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A couple things to know. One is that God is a worker. And one of his work projects is us. We are his workmanship. Early on in this series, we talked about God as both the creator and also the recreator. The one who has made all things and then in the face of human failure and rebellion proceeded through the work of Christ to provide a way for broken people to be recreated again or as Jesus called it, to be born again. God has work for us to do. God created Adam to tend the garden Paul says that God has recreated us in Christ to do things. Is Pastor Lance hanging out in here somewhere? You know, wandering the grounds. I, there he is. You know what? We hired Pastor Lance last year. And, and before we ever hired him, we put together a job description. We did not hire him just for his raw, natural good looks. We actually had things that we wanted him to do when he came. God, before you were ever born, had a job description already put together for you. He said, there are things that I want you to do. He knew your story. He knew how you'd grow up. He knew what your natural abilities would be. He knew what the opportunities in life were going to be presented to you. He knew the spiritual gifts that he planned to give you. And based on all of that, God has a job description that he's put together, things that he wants you to do. We are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. There are levers that he wants you to push. But they're not purposeless levers like the box. These are levers that are part of his recreation plans. You are invited to be part of what God is doing. Now, I think one of the dangers in life is that we can miss our purpose because we get too focused on pushing our own little levers. And we never pause to ask the bigger questions. I think that's one of the reasons why God built the day of rest into every week. It was to give you time to stop and step back and just look at life and go, what am I doing? What is my life about? Am I fulfilling the purposes that God has for me? That's not to say that all the pushing of little levers is bad. It's not. For some reason, throughout my life, I repeatedly ended up in jobs where I had to clean toilets. Now, there is no job that I'm aware of where you're more guaranteed that everything you have poured your hard energy into is going to be literally flushed down the drain than cleaning toilets. That can feel like one of, you know, these kinds of jobs. But I've also been in parts of the world where they don't have toilets. Or they have toilets, but apparently nobody has that job of cleaning the toilet. And I can tell you that it makes a difference. That small thing matters. In places where they don't have that kind of cleanliness, diseases are rampant. People even die, all for lack of someone doing the thankless, seemingly insignificant, and yet truly important job of cleaning a toilet. See, living a life of purpose doesn't necessarily mean that we need to be the person that invents the cure for cancer or that we have solved global hunger. A purpose-filled life can include a lot of toilet cleaning. There will be diapers to change and gardens to wheeze and weed and, and less than glamorous jobs that have to be done to pay the bills. But if life becomes nothing more than getting out the mundane Monday through Friday just so I can get to the weekend to push a different set of levers, then we're missing out. There can be an even bigger problem. I read a story a couple weeks ago about a a guy in North Carolina back in 2019. He was in charge of a demolition crew, and their job was to uh, demolish an apartment building. And to do it was going to take five tons of dynamite. Now, there were just two problems. The first was that the day the job was to be done, the boss showed up, and he'd been drinking, so he wasn't really in his best. The second is, he had the crew put the dynamite in the wrong apartment building. Now, thankfully, nobody died. But a lot of people were left homeless. Four and a half million dollars of damages were done. And there was still an apartment building that had to be torn down elsewhere. Here's the thing. We can get involved in doing big things. But what is the cost? if at the end, we discover that we weren't doing the right things? What if we've put our dynamite in the wrong building because we just weren't paying attention? 
Let me share with you three vignettes from the teaching, the life of Jesus. If you know your Bible, you've been around church much, these are stories you know well. Let me just bring them to your attention again. The first is the story that Jesus told about a farmer and a barn. It comes out of Luke chapter 12. Jesus told him a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the story is of a guy who did big things, and he did them well. He was a good farmer, and, and he got a bountiful crop. And yet, Jesus says, in the end, he was a guy who put the dynamite in the wrong place. Now, I don't think the problem was the barn. He did his job well, and the crops had to be stored someplace. The problem was what he came to believe was his purpose. What was the purpose of the abundance that he had? And when he saw the abundance, the only purpose he could think of was, I should have an easy life. I should just have a party. There was no thought as to what God, the one who had blessed him with those crops, might desire. The farmer thought he was living large. Jesus says in God's eyes, he was living very, very small. All right, vignette number two, a servant and a bag of coins from Matthew 25. The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground, and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they'd used his money. The servant, to whom he'd entrusted the five bags of silver, came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest. I've earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I've earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good, faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, and the screen went out. It's back, all right. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, investing crops you didn't plant, gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I'd lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, 
you wicked, lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant. Give it to the one with 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, what got Mr. One Bag in hot water? Well, it wasn't because he had less to invest, right? It was the master that gave each of them the amount. In fact, you, you might argue that uh, one of the reasons the master only gave him one bag is because he wasn't convinced this guy was going to do very well. He wasn't such a smart investor. And so it wasn't because the guy tried and failed. The master had kind of braced himself that he might lose this whole bag of silver. So that wasn't it. No, what got him in trouble was that this guy did nothing at all. He just put those shiny coins in a safe spot and went on with his life. He knew what the master wanted. He could see what the other servants were doing. He could see how hard they were working. He knew there was a purpose to why he'd been given that silver. He just didn't want to be bothered. He had his own set of priorities. He didn't steal the master's money. He just didn't pursue the master's purpose. Third vignette, a master and a towel. This is not a story that Jesus made up, like the first two. All right, those were parables. This is something that Jesus lived out. And I love this story because it gives dignity and purpose to the most mundane, toilet-scrubbing kinds of jobs. The setting is the final night, the last supper that Jesus shared with his disciples before his arrest and his eventual execution. Now, they didn't realize how momentous that evening was. But Jesus did. It marked this watershed moment in his relationship with them. The last three years of life with these men had been building up toward this moment. It had been a life filled with teaching and ministry and, and growing crowds and breathtaking miracles. And yet it was about to pitch into this chaotic abyss of pain and confusion. And Jesus knew what was coming. And yet for Jesus, what lay ahead in those next few hours was not the undoing of what he had come to do. I think to any of us, we would have seen those next few hours as everything collapsing and falling apart, but Jesus didn't see it that way. It actually was the purpose that he had come for. And so for Jesus, that night was decisive. Before the night was out, Judas would betray Soldiers would arrest, a corrupt trial would ensue, and ultimately a cross would be erected on top of a hill. And Jesus would die. A death that would soon be overcome by life, but a horrid death nonetheless. And so in those final holy moments of peace with his disciples, Jesus chose his words and his actions carefully. He was very purposeful. 
That's what it means to be purposeful, right? It means to fill with purpose whatever it is that you're doing. Before the meal was over, we saw that Jesus institutes what we call the Lord's table, communion. He took, he took bread and broke it. He took wine and he served it. And he said, these things now have a, a deep, significant meaning to them. They represent my body, my blood, broken, shed for you. But before that meal even started, Jesus intentionally, purposefully did something else. Something that was never done by a master at a feast from the head of the table. Rather, it was an act that was always carried out by the lowest of slaves at the feet of the guests. And this too, he said, should be something that would be carried on by all who would follow him. Here it is from John 13. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Two things that Jesus knew before he started washing feet. He knew that Satan had already found a friend in Judas. And yet Jesus chose to wash Judas's feet. And Jesus knew the great power and authority that was his. And yet he chose to wash dirty feet. And the reason he gave was he said, I want to set an example is not the example that the world gravitates toward. Uh, the, the, the example the world gravitates toward is that the point of power is to push the ugly jobs onto the powerless. But the example of love honors others with service, not based on what can be gained, but motivated by what can be given. And in setting the example that he wanted them to follow, he wanted to radically alter their paradigm of what success meant in his kingdom. He wanted to flesh out the purposes, the procedures of his kingdom. He wanted them to catch a vision for the kinds of work that he had always planned for them to do. So what is it that elevates a loser job to a noble task? Let me suggest two things. First, a loser job is elevated to a noble task when it is done in love. It's a caring heart that seeks to serve out of loyalty rather than obligation. It's a humble heart that takes pride in lifting others up rather than being lifted up. It's the mindset that says, how can I help instead of what will I get? It's eyes that look for the greater need more than the better opportunity. Second, a loser job is elevated to a noble task when it is done for a loved master. 
Uh, when I've told you before that when I was in seminary, I worked part-time for LA County Sheriff's Department. I worked for a unit called Emergency Operations Bureau. And our offices were in a very large sheriff's facility in Whittier called the STARS Center. And, uh, and one of the things, one of the benefits of working there was we had these inmates. They were on a work release program. So they had to do gardening and other jobs around there. Well, one of the jobs they were assigned was to wash and wax employees' cars. You brought your wax, and they would wax your car while you were working. It was great. My car looked beautiful the whole time I was in LA because I had inmates waxing it for me. Now, I think if you were to ask those work release inmates, is this a noble task? They would say, no, this is a loser job. I am doing this because I am such a loser. I got caught. I did the crime, now I'm doing the time, and I've got to wax this guy's car. Well now, play a little imagination game with me. Let's just imagine your favorite president. Don't yell out any names. <laughs> Don't yell out who your most unfavorite president is either. It doesn't matter, you just do you. Now imagine that he showed up in Squim and you got a VIP invitation to meet with the president backstage before he spoke. And imagine that he pulled you aside and he said, you know, I've heard that you're pretty attentive to details and you're a hard worker. And you're feeling pretty good. I mean, wow, you've got a reputation that has is, that is earned the recognition of, of the president. And he says, you know, I hate to ask this, but on the way over here, we went through some pretty bad weather and also a lot of bugs. And the presidential limo is not looking so good. And right after this speech, I'm supposed to go and meet with a foreign ambassador, and, and I'm hoping that we can finalize a treaty. Would you mind washing my car? Now, car washing hasn't changed. It's soapy water, grimy fenders. It's the same job that the work release inmates were doing. But what has changed in that job is a whole new sense of purpose. You're not doing time for crime. You're serving someone great whom you greatly admire. You might even be contributing to world peace. Suddenly, a loser job becomes a noble task. In fact, Jesus specifically talked about menial jobs as having great purpose when they are done for him. This is Matthew 25. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Wow. What do you do to inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world? Well, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me a drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I was naked. You clothed me. I was sick. You visited me. I was in prison. You came to me. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Small things, loser jobs, become great things, noble tasks, when we know they're done for someone great, a beloved master. So what does a life of purpose look like in the real world? God may call you to something that is truly life-altering. 
Maybe he will call you to leave a career and pour yourself into some kind of vocational ministry that will touch thousands. Maybe he's going to inspire you to write a book that will impact hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe climb the Amazon charts. Maybe you've finished a career and God's going to call you into a whole new chapter, a whole second career of service. Burnett and I had the opportunity several years ago to be in a Muslim-majority country, a place where conventional, traditional forms of Christian witness were not allowed. While we were there, we met an older woman who had finished a teaching career in the United States and then felt God calling her to start teaching again. And she had gone into an environment that many would have said was hostile, was closed, and yet she was using the gifts she'd been given to be a witness in that place. That's pretty cool stuff. Now, maybe the job description God has prepared for you looks a little less glamorous. Here's the problem. Some of us want to live a life of purpose, and we go looking for our purpose as though it's something out there. It's this sort of nebulous, big, amazing thing that I've never figured out quite what it is that God's calling me. I've never found my purpose. How many of you know the name Mike Rowe? He was the host of a TV show called Dirty Jobs years ago. Um, okay, Mike did a, an essay some time ago that I heard that I thought was really good. He was talking about passion. Because that's another one. You hear people talk about following your passion, right? And he maintained that passion shouldn't necessarily be the thing that drives our choices. Sometimes we're passionate about things where we honestly don't have aptitude. I could be passionate about quarterbacking and football. And trust me, there will never be a winning team that has me as a quarterback. In his essay, Mike went on to talk about some of the individuals, though, he had met who were doing less than glamorous jobs. He talked about a guy that owned a septic tank business. Now, probably nobody says that they are passionate about septic tanks. And yet this guy was passionate about serving his customers. Mike wrapped up his talk by suggesting that the key to career satisfaction wasn't found in following our passions, but instead in taking our passions with us wherever we go. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. And I think some of the same applies when we talk about this idea of purpose. The call of God isn't to spend my life pursuing an elusive idea labeled purpose. What God wants is for us to live a purposeful life. That whatever I'm doing, big or small, I'm looking for his purposes in it. A life of purpose is not something that we put on hold until we find the noble cause. It's something we live out by treating each moment as a noble opportunity to serve God. The Apostle Paul thought that even slaves, people who had no say whatsoever when it came to pursuing personal aspirations, could live lives that were filled with purpose. Here's what he says in Ephesians. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. 
Whatever you're doing, even if you're a slave, Paul says you can live a life of purpose to serve God, not just other people. Maybe you're a young mother and part of God's job for you is to keep offering up the sweet savor of prayer for your little ones, even as you're changing yet another smelly diaper. Maybe you're a contractor. You put in a long, hard day, you get home, you're tired, there's a bunch of phone messages there on your, on your answering machine. And you're tempted just to delete them all. But then you make the choice to love people, to serve them with the courtesy of calling them back. That little act of kindness becomes a service to the Lord. It demonstrates that even in the small things, like my voicemail, I can choose to try and fulfill God's purposes for my life. Maybe you're a career-minded professional. You own your own business, and, and there's always more to do than there is time to do it. I get it. I spent 25 years running my own business, and, and you can work 24-7, no problem. But then you recall that one of God's priorities is Sabbath rest and fellowship. And you know those are things that are on his to-do list for your life, and so you make the choice to leave the office early, to close down the job site and get to your life group or carve out time for worship on a Sunday morning. And you do it because you know there is more to God's call on your life than just building bigger barns. Maybe you decide to sign up for the church coffee team, which doesn't sound all that glamorous. But then again, you know how much people appreciate a cup of coffee. You know the fellowship that happens around it. And so there you are. You're showing up a little early on a Sunday morning to get the coffee brewed. You stick around late to pick up the empty cups. Not because you have a passion for hot water and empty cups, but because you love God's people. You want to make their time together a little bit richer. Maybe you decided to help teach Sunday school or help in the nursery. And there's lots of things that you have to do but you choose to give some time each week to pray and prepare to love and teach some little ones. And only God can look 20 or 30 or more years down the road to know how that service fulfills his bigger purposes in the lives of those children and those families. Or maybe when you get together with your friends down at Starbucks and you see kids coming in, you get to start talking about all the things that you see going wrong in culture today. All the things that are wrong with kids. But then God punches you in the shoulder. And rather than settling for criticizing a confused generation or firing off a letter to the editor about what is wrong with schools, you decide to do something crazy. You volunteer to help with Young Life. You actually get to know those kids. You learn to laugh with them instead of at them. You learn their stories. And as you learn their stories, you find you begin to cry with them as well. And you pray for them. And you love them for Jesus' sake. And maybe God uses you to change a student's life. The culture is still all messed up. And yet you've let God put you someplace where you can actually make a difference maybe in small ways, maybe in large, and maybe in ways that you will never really know. Regardless, you are living life with heavenly purpose in place of pessimism. 
There's a quote often attributed to Mother Teresa. It says, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. I'm, I'm going to wrap this up with the same verse that we kicked off with out of Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what has God prepared for you? How are you choosing to use the blessings that he has put in your barn? Where are you putting your dynamite? Where are you investing the things that he has put into your bag? Who are you serving? What towel needs someone to pick it up? Are you living life pursuing his purposes? Or are you just pushing the lever? 